everybody. Welcome back to The Big Show. This is As Lutheran As It Gets, episode 68, and we are, as always, your hosts, Pastor Christopher Gillespie. I love the law. And I am and I am Donovan Riley, and I cannot drive 55. <laughs> there you go. I was going to say, we can quote song lyrics, obscure song lyrics all day long here. So shout out to the Red Rocker and, <laughs> and to uh, Joe Strummer. I fought the law and the law one. Yes. Which is a cover of a previous song from the 50s, which was sung by, hmm. that's a good question, I fought the law. It is interesting yeah. how many really big hits are actually somebody else's song. You right? Know? Like they do the cover better than the original. Yeah, like Prince or Dolly Parton or, yeah. Or Bob Dylan says, yeah, just listen to Hendrix's version. Of All on the Watchtower. Mm-hmm, right. Yeah. Bobby Fuller. There you go. Yeah, there we go. So thus, we are in episode three now in this series on Philip Melanchthon's Lochi Communes, or if you're American, Lochi Communes. <laughs> or Lochi, Lochi. The Lochi. The Lochi, which I can't because it always sounds like a pasta. Oh, like Nochi. Lochi noodles. Yeah, like Nochi, exactly. I'm mnemonic that way. Yum. Johnny mnemonic. This is off to a bad start. I can tell already. For those of you listening, uh, I started sabbatical three days ago, four days ago now, and my mind has been free now to wander. All sorts of things are shaking loose. All sorts of things are shaking loose, especially all the trivialities that I picked up along the years and trivia. Thus, who knows what will happen in the next 60 minutes. But nonetheless, we're going to dive back into Philip Melanchthon on the power of the law from his Lo Chi. And we are going to begin this episode on page 81 of the Ichthus, the Library of Christian Classics Ichthus edition, edited by Wilhelm Pauk. Mm-hmm. And you can find this on Amazon. We'll post a link as always. And show notes, we'll have the links to the last two episodes. Good. Uh, the go last episode and... being largely a repeat of the episode previous to it. <laughs> Was it a re- repeat. Just think of it. Rehash. Say, just think of it of you wake up and you're still in the dream but you think you're awake. Mm, recapitulation. Right. Although what was really weird is I was listening to the last episode and then somehow touched another previous episode and wondered if you had like made a huge mistake on the editing of the last episode. Ah. Because it jumped from some conversation about Philip to another conversation about Philip that we had. Yeah. <laughs> it happens. Like, huh, it yeah. happens. It happens. Well, you know, we're in like a, what do you want to say? Like a narrative groove. There we go. And, uh, you know, it's called uh, theological development, something like that. I don't know. Well, like iron sharpening iron, as I've said in the past. Mm-hmm. But this, what what Philip has to say here in his Lochi about the power of the law, as we've said, is is really second to none amongst Lutherans. And as Dr. Luther himself said, this is the best systematic ever written. <laughs> it becomes and, fundamental then, the way that he speaks. What we're right. trying to do here is is probably learn how to echo um the speech of melanchthon here in our in our own teaching yeah let let philip express the doctrine and then have a conversation about how this manifests itself at least in our pastoral practice in particular Mm -hmm. yeah and really say okay here's what's written down on the page here's what he is teaching in his classroom this is the conversation the wittenberg theologians are having whether in faculty meetings or at the black cloister or at the bar or wherever it might be so now, these 500 years later, we agree that this is still just as relevant today as it's ever been. And yet, within the context of our own pastoral vocation, how does this play itself out? 
Yeah, we're like the um, folks that sit at the back of the Bible class and then raise their hand up and say, hey, um, pastor. What about? Yeah, what? <laughs> how does this work out like in this context or, you know? Right. Yeah, explain right. to me more. Right, and so hopefully too, you could find some traction in the conversation to go and read this for yourself and then think uh, from the other side of it, not from the pastoral vocation side, but from the one who receives the pastoral vocation, receives the ministry, how are you receiving this or not from your pastor? Mm. And in your conversations with other Christian brothers and sisters, and is this something that could be used for a during a Bible study hour and and to read through something like the power of the law, and then next week we'll jump into the power of the gospel. Yeah. And what benefits do you believe you can draw from what Philip here has said? Well, I think it's so clear. Yeah, it is pretty clear that um, it's very accessible. Yes, I think so very much. So diving in then on page eighty one. In Galatians chapter 3, after the apostle in a long discussion has taught that righteousness is not attained by the help of only the law, he adds the question which seems justifiable. Why then the law? Good Verse 19, (laughs) chapter 3, verse 19. So why then the law? That is, if it was of no help in attaining righteousness, I ask what use it was. Quote, it was added because of transgressions, he answers, again, verse 19. That is, in order that sin might be increased. So why then the law, if it cannot lead us to or help us attain righteousness? Well, the answer to why the law is, in order that sin might be increased. That is, in order that sin might be increased. For knowledge of sin causes sin to increase, both because it rages more implacably when it is restrained, and because nature indignantly bears it being confound or bears its being confounded and rages against divine judgment. There we go. That was a tough sentence. Yeah, and as we've talked about many times as as uh, fathers, <laughs> we know this all too well. Tell people what right. they tell your kids what they can't do and they'll 100% plot and scheme to do it. Um, unless there is I don't know, a judgment that they just just can't bear. Right. And then maybe that might restrain them. Maybe, <laughs> as far as you know. If you as a parent can use subjunctives, God bless you, but in my household, it's either an imperative or an indicative. You must or you will. Well, that's, <laughs> that's parenting 101 in my book is follow through. <laughs> right. Not, you really should wash your clothes. And then you look to the bottom of the basement stairs and there are seven baskets of clothes. Yeah, it's like, uh, what's like the law? What do we, how do we describe this? Oh, that's like the law gumming you to death. Right, right. There's no teeth. There's no teeth. It doesn't actually do any harm. It just kind of makes things uncomfortable. (laughs) It's a nagging use of the law. Mm. You really should wash your clothes. You really should wash your clothes. You really should wash your clothes. And then at the end of the week, none of the clothes are washed. Why? Because you didn't tell them to do it and they're children. So therefore, between the upstairs and the basement, they got distracted. Right. So here, the law, meaning God's law, is is divine judgment. It's not yes. divine nagging. <laughs> not divine nagging and not divine will, I'll help you attain righteousness. No, it is, it is constraint or restraint to the point where you fight against it. It is added because of transgressions so that sin might be increased. Knowledge of sin causes sin to increase. Not that somehow you'll sin more when God's word of law speaks to you, but rather what God's word of law does is it exposes the depths of your sin to the extent that you the law increases sin beyond all measure. Mm. It's like we were talking before we went on air. 
that for someone like Marcus Aurelius as a philosopher, the purpose of a life is not, as Aristotle said, to go from potentiality to actuality, to basically take an acorn and watch it grow into a mighty oak tree. That's not the purpose of life for Marcus Aurelius. That's actually the opposite of life. Yeah. For Aurelius, the purpose of life is to actually strip away everything that interferes and obstructs you enjoying the true life that the gods or God created you to be and to enjoy. Which you and already all, have, it's not a potential. Which, exactly, exactly. That the, the law of nature or natural law has already imbued you with gifts, abilities. Um, if you're a father, for example, if you're a man, you're intended to become a father. If you're a woman, you're intended to become a mother and so forth and so on. So all of these things that we build up around ourselves, like wealth, fame, influence, the things that we think will give our life meaning, that will make us happy, for Marcus Aurelius, those are actually the things that impede and obstruct and get in the way of us enjoying true happiness because true happiness can only be enjoyed when we are who we are intended to be from the very beginning. Yeah, you think about all the things that, that I've striven after, if I use that right. word, that to strive after, try to gain or, or to, to earn or to favor. Right. And the things that I actually probably enjoy the most vocationally or just you know physical possessions or whatever are things that kind of just dropped in my lap. Right. And just ended up with, um, and, you know, <laughs> every once in a while you give those, you have those moments of clarity where like, how did I end up here? I mean, right. Nine, nine kids, um, actually a congregation to serve. I mean, how did that happen? Right. Uh, and that it's actually a wonderful moment because you're just like, just enjoy it, you know? Right. I was going to say, you are who you are because this is who, what God has given you to do, hmm? to be. So for Aristotle, you're always moving from something to something better. That's mm -hmm. kind of the purpose of life, to progress from something base, he calls it, or vices, the base vices, to something virtuous, something good. Whereas Marcus Aurelius would argue, no, you, 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 are, you are born with everything you need to be happy and be a good person. In fact, Marcus Aurelius argues, the purpose of life is to be a good person, and the way that you do that is in your vocation by doing good for others in a selfless way which obviously echoes love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. Oh. And this is really the point of philosophy. For those of you listening, philosophy is essentially when we turn away from God, we are still imbued with that natural law, which says love your neighbor as yourself, the golden rule. You don't have to be a Christian or a Jew or even religious to know this is the point of life. Love your neighbor, take care of your neighbor. I have friends who are atheists. They're nurses, doctors, social workers, they're good people, and they believe the purpose of life is to be good and take care of other people. Yeah, the golden rule, right? The golden rule. Thus, when we turn away from God, we don't lose the law that is written into our hearts. That doesn't like get taken away, but rather it, go, it has to find an object for itself. Mm. And rather than God, it finds you. It finds the person in the mirror and says, you you are the most important person on the face of the planet and the purpose of your life is to do good for others so that you enjoy the benefits of doing good for others. It is interesting to have Melanchthon um, confess here that the law restrains the the whole self-improvement project, the attaining righteousness project. Right. And uh, that's not something that we hear comfortably. No, because we that's why we smuggle philosophy back into theology, mm. as in late medieval scholasticism, smuggling Aristotle into Christian theology, because as you note, the old Adam loves a project, and he's ne he's a spiritual hyperactive. He's never happy just being who he is in that moment. He's always got to be something else. Yeah, and as Melanchthon better. says, it rages against it. Yes. The idea of right. being restrained. <laughs> right. I think 
indignant, indigno in Latin literally means to punch against or punch back against. Hmm. Digno to punch. I think it actually means to like negate or push back against, punch back against. Yeah. Latin scholars, correct me if I'm wrong. Wow. But, but yeah, it, it cannot bear being confounded. It cannot bear being told, actually, this thing, this self-improvement project that you've smuggled into Christian theology is actually the thing the law is attacking. That's why you're so miserable. Yeah. And yeah. going back to what we said in a previous episode, what Philip says is, that's why the most outwardly righteous people and holy people in their heart hate God the most. Because it's a futile pursuit. They're, and they're also the, the least content, I think. I was going right, to say exactly. happy, but uh, you know, outwardly they're probably, can often be very happy. Outwardly happy, but inwardly they're never satisfied. Never satisfied. And it, right. um, you know, in regards to loving your neighbor, I don't know that there is ever a completion or a perfection in this life. No, I agree. And we were talking before we started to record. If you go with Aristotle, you're never satisfied because you're always going from one thing to the next thing. You're always trying to improve, so mm-hmm. on and so on. Again, in an earthly sense, nothing wrong with that inherently. Wanting to be a better person, wanting to be a better father, as we talked about in previous episodes, nothing wrong with that. However, for Aurelius, it's really just hacking away at yourself and hacking away at the vices and hacking away at things like conceit and arrogance and greed and selfishness and all these these vices that prevent you from being a good person for your neighbor. Right, and I think that's the key. Uh, you've said it a few times, but it's worth emphasizing is it's not about improving yourself, but it's improving yourself for the other. Yes. So that you always. are, uh, a, you know, like you said, a better husband, a better uh, father, um, mm-hmm. a better neighbor. And, you know, you, you are a blessing, you become a blessing to them. What's getting in the right. way of you being a blessing to them? And that's what needs to die. Right, and I think, uh, as I've said in the past, if you wanna know what sin your pastor struggles with the most in private, listen to what, he ra- what sin he rails against the most from the pulpit. Yeah, and maybe maybe extending this conversation, uh, another idea there would be, um, what are the th- what is it about him that gets in the way of him being your pastor? You know, right? What 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 are the barriers to you hearing him right. or receiving the gifts from him? Right. Um, and and that you know that's a sin. Right. Right. And that's why I bring it up actually to turn the gun on myself as usual. Mm-hmm. That the reason I bring it up so Thank often you, is because. <laughs> Yes, exactly right. That the reason I bring it up so often in this podcast and in conversations is because that is the thing that I struggle against. I talked about this on the way home with my kids from jujitsu class last night of because of the life that Annie and I lived and both being abused and both growing up in abusive households, like it drives us to want to break that cycle of abuse that goes back generations, mm-hmm. break the cycle of addiction and so forth and codependence <clears throat> and to basically go in a different direction and say, okay, kids, now you have an option. You don't have to repeat the cycle. Right. Therefore, when these things become an obsession, let's say, uh, your passion, we, we, you know, rantically we call it your passion. What What's at the root of that though is still that judgment you're not who you're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And and the har- and the more you try, the harder you work at being that person, that ideal person that you want to see yourself to be, the more unsatisfied you are because, as I said to you, the older I get, the less I know. Because the more <laughs> I learn about the world, about myself, the more I read, the more knowledge I gain, the more you come to the realization, I don't know anything. When you look at all of the books ever written, when you look at all of the people on earth just right now, and you look at all of the experiences of every generation and to say, yeah, I'm good. Like, I mean, how do you do that? Yeah. 
once you're exposed to that just vast ocean of information, which I think is what troubles young people today with the internet is like, there's just too much information and you can't process all of it. Yeah. And I think that's probably why, I mean, I collect books, right? Because the right, thought is- trophies. Yeah. Well, maybe they're like trophies, but in another sense, it's like at some point I really want to do better. <laughs> right. So right. it's a way of kind of, oh, I don't know, signaling that maybe <laughs> I, I'm going to, I'm going to try to learn all of this. Well, and this goes to uh, Mark Manson, an author of a book I can't repeat the title of on this podcast, mm -mm. but he points this out and actually Jocko Willink points this out too. What is the value of an idea that is not acted upon and executed and made real? Zero, <laughs> right? But in your own mind, it's you, put a, you yeah. put a value on it and say, but I read this and I've got this great idea now and that's worth something, right? I didn't even Tell read me. it. I just bought it and put it on my desk. Right, exactly. <laughs> when you open it, it makes that cracking noise. Because mm, it's so never nice. the, yeah, right? It is, yeah. It's like when I was in high school and college and you collect comic books and you keep them in the Mylar wrapping. You never take them out. <laughs> So their value isn't tarnished. It's like, what's a comic book worth that isn't read? Well, the same thing as a Star Wars figure, the worth of a Star Wars figure that was never taken out of its packaging in 1979. Oh, okay, well. That kind of things, right? It is actually eBay, baby, okay. eBay. <laughs> but the point being is that we we want knowledge. We, we crave information that our people don't have. We talked about conspiracy theories and mm. mystery cults before we went on the air. The appeal to knowing something that our people don't know it, it, it obsesses us, it, it captivates us as human beings. And yet what is the value of knowledge that is not made manifest in such a way that it benefits your neighbor? It's not acted upon. And for a guy like Jocko or a guy like Mark Manson, the answer is zero, it has zero value. Because how do you know it's a great idea if you don't work, work it out, act it out in real time, manifest it in such a way that you can go, oh, that was a great idea. Cause look, there's mm -hmm. the results. Or, well, I thought it was a great idea, but the results are hyper-destructive. Uh, that's not a great idea. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Is that a kind of pragmatism? Yeah, very much so. Mm -hmm. It's like you have an idea. What are you going to do with it? And yeah. so I know, you know, we all know the people with lots of great ideas. I have at least, oh, I don't know, maybe 57 per day. <laughs> I'm joking. But the point is I, if left to myself and if I'm not forced to act upon those ideas, yeah, I 100% have dozens of great ideas every day. How many of them are actually great? Zero. You're a visionary type, right? So anyways, to continue then, many of the types in scripture also teach that this is the power of the law. And by types, he means a figurative or symbolic passage. Correct. Tupos, right? In Greek. Yes, tupos. So when he says types, that's what he means. Sim symbolical stuff. Like figure shadow of, or figure. Yeah. Yeah. Figure of speech. Um, so many types of scripture teach that this is the power of the law. In Exodus chapter 19, when God was about to give the law, the people were extremely terrified by thunder, smoke, lightning, clouds, the blast of a trumpet, and all kinds of terrible spectacles. That sounds like my church. <laughs> they forgot the laser lights. Exodus 19 verses 16 through 18. All of these designate the terrors of a stricken conscience. Hmm. Or is not the voice of the people the voice of a shaken conscience when they say, let not God speak to us lest we die? Chapter 20, verse 19. In a remarkable way, Moses alleviates the people's consternation, not now as the servant of the law, but as an evangelist when he says, 
do not fear, for God has come to prove you, and that the fear of him may be before your eyes, that you may not sin. Verse 20. O voice of Moses clearly containing the gospel. Unless the conscience hears this, how will it bear that horrible countenance of the judge? But we shall speak more of the consolation of the gospel hereafter. Yeah, and I was going to ask that question. Um, you know, this statement from Moses, verse 20, what is that, chapter 20, verse 20, it's, is it as gospel-y as, as, as we would typically say? Yeah, that's what I was thinking as I was reading it too. Do not fear, for God has come to prove you. It's not exactly Christ, you know, Christ for the forgiveness of sins, but um, that, yeah. God, that God will prove you. I, I think we can read Jesus into this statement. Uh, sure. Maybe that's what Melanchthon's doing there, is saying that how are we proved not guilty without sin? Yeah. Through the death of Christ. Right, right. I will, I will repay you double for all your sin which doesn't actually mean he's going to punish you twice. He's not going to kill you and then dig you up, raise you from the dead, and then kill you a second time. And that'll be enough. <laughs> exactly. That'll get the but job But rather, done. no, Jesus actually pays for your sin double what is owed. Mm. Hence, forgiveness is abundant and overflowing. Right. Mm -hmm. Presently, Melanchthon continues, that light shone from the face of Moses so that the eyes of the people were blinded. This was the reason that thereafter he did not show himself to the people unless his face was veiled. For human minds or eyes do not endure the splendor of divine light. In a word, the lightning and flames on the mountain and the splendor in the face of Moses clearly indicate, to speak in Pauline language, the glory of God by which he confounds the human heart. That's interesting too, right? The glory of God confounds the human heart? Well, yes, I thinking about all the times, um, say in the liturgy, so practically speaking here, again, pastorally, um, that we speak of God's glory. Yeah, the glory, and, for and example. And we like terminate the, the Psalms with, with a Gloria Patri, right? Glory be to the Father and Son. Right, um, right. And uh, the, the thing that we don't, I don't know, maybe we just don't talk about it very much, is that uh, God's glory is veiled for us in Christ. Right. Right, that we, we, we do not see the 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 unveiled face of god but we see mm -hmm. him through his son right i just think it's fascinating that he points out the glory of god confounds our heart so then the the glory of pottery for example or as you said it's 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 essentially expressing confessing that we don't comprehend what we just said <laughs> like this is beyond our comprehension well and that's true and and if it were unveiled, so what is revealed to us, for example, of say, I don't know, the heavenly throne room, right? Sure. Right. That it, uh, <laughs> what little we get is as much as we can comprehend. I mean, that's kind of how the evangelist right. would say it, right? Right, right. Um, you know, this is, oh, I don't know how to describe it, but I'm going to try to use words and uh, right. this is the best I'm going to do, but it's it's beyond comprehension. It's right. Yeah. Confounding. It's like, is it a floor made entirely of glass or jewels? But then what about the river that flows out from the throne and the tree? Like, what is it? What does it look like? Is it a little bit of everything? What is it? It's like, dude, I'm trying to do the best I can with the words I've got. Well, and two, the law is also confounding. Yes. That, that God would require um, an obedience that has no exception, that has no wiggle room, that that is... I, I'm hesitating to use the word perfect because I know you'll jump on me if I say perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners of the show understand. Tetelestai. Yes, that it, a, a complete, a complete obedience, right? Right. Start to finish, 100%. Right. And 
well, how can how could he possibly demand that of us? <laughs> right. <laughs> that confounds well, us. That's the 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 faithful loving kindness of God that the Holy Spirit works in such a way mm. that he does not give us different words or a different language to communicate um, these things that confound our heart, but rather to say, with the words that you've been given, I will inspire you to speak in such a way that you describe for your people this glorious thing. Mm. That yes, it will confound your heart, but it will also give you hope. Well, and you see this play out uh, liturgically. I know you're not preparing to preach, but I am. Um, this coming Sunday is is Pentecost, you know, and right. that's the conclusion. I love Peter's sermon there um, because at the conclusion, the people say to him, which "We don't use." Do you have people respond to your sermons? Maybe after church on the way out. <laughs> but generally right. speaking, not in the context of the liturgy. That's what we should do. Okay, in the name of Jesus, amen. Um, now, what do you all think of that? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but uh, they do. They say, you know, what must we do to be saved? Right. I mean, they're so confounded that they, they, they're like, uh, now what? Mm -hmm. Prophet Joel's been fulfilled um, and we killed our Savior. What, right. What now? now? What? Exactly. Why, is there anything? And right. Uh, that's right where I would say that's right where the Lord wants you is to yes. say, I got nothing. I, I don't even right. know. I have no idea. It, it's right. all on you now. And then he can go to work hacking away at all that stuff <laughs> that gets in the way of him, you enjoying that relationship with your Jesus. Yeah, it's beautiful. So then Melanchthon continues, the judgment of God is that knowledge of sin. For this reason, let the attritions of the sophists and their pretended contritions give way, as well as the seared consciences of hypocrites. Here, God looks at the depths of the heart. That human reason sees its own sin is so far from the truth that it is proper even for the saints and those filled with the Spirit to pray confessing their ignorance. And this is a key point, too, going back to my earlier reference about how the late medieval scholastics really brought Aristotle to the mm -hmm. fore. Yeah, as part of the whole their, humanist movement, right? Right, in their theology is that Aristotle, just like Marcus Aurelius, they have no word for sin because sin must be revealed to you through the Holy Spirit through the preaching of God's word. Yeah, sin so, is by definition God's judgment against uh, what he calls you, wrongdoing. Right. Thus, when philosophy is smuggled into Christian theology, you'll notice original sin and the sins that we commit every day, those are downplayed for the sake of this, this progress from being something that's lesser than to something that is more than moving from mm. vice to virtue. We call it vice to grace or something like that in the late mm. medieval system. Mm. But yeah. yeah, sin gets pushed out of the way. Well, so sin isn't this total all-consuming state of affairs as in Romans 7. Right. But, but rather sin is this bad habit, this habitus as it's often called, or an accident as it's in late medieval theology, it's an accident. That's what I was going to say, that, that, that sin becomes this like passive condition that you're born with that you have no control over, but you do right. have control over the, um, overcoming sin, becoming a better person, gaining right. virtue and honor. Well, I was going to say, then the confession of sin is very much like the old Britney Spears song, Oops, <clears throat> I Did It Again. That's what I, sin becomes then. It's like, did myself. you sin today? Oops, I'm sorry, I did it again. Right, now, so, what do I have to do? Show true, then this is his point too here. Mm -hmm. Well, you have to show true contrition through works of penance. Uh, by the way, he said, attritions of the sophists and pretended contrition. So those are two yes. technical right. uh, theolo theology slash philosophical terms. Attrition is feeling sorry that you don't feel sorry for your sin. <laughs> and contrition is you feel sorry for your sin and you ask, what can I do to be better? Yeah. 
Yeah, but it's a pretend contrition, meaning um, what? That they can somehow be contrite enough? Right, right, yeah. Mm. Again, attrition is, I read a book and I know all this, that's enough. I'm kind of dying here. Yeah, contrition <laughs> would literally be, I read this book, now how can I put it into practice in, in order to make my, my neighbor's life better? Mm. Attrition is basically, I'm sorry for the sake of being sorry. <laughs> It's, it's uh, again, it's more like an internal thing. Like, don't you feel sorry? So this comes from the, the uh, old French from the Latin, meaning to grind down. <laughs> Contrition is to, to be ground there we down. Go. That's perfect, I like it. Yeah, I didn't know that, that's nice. Yeah. And attrition is just to rub. There we go. So, so it's, it's a manner of degree, right? Yeah, right, you're I like kinda, that. You're kind of rubbed, <laughs> that's the sophist right. versus being ground down. Well, like you said earlier, attrition is being gummed to death. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And contrition is being ground between the molars. Yeah. But the problem with both of these, as he points out, is that God looks into the depth of the heart, to quote the psalmist. Therefore, you can practice attrition, you can practice contrition, but God sees into your heart. Mm. In fact, God sees so deep into your heart, he sees the things that you aren't even aware of yourself. So our confessions um, are careful about this to say that that true contri or that true repentance has two parts, right? Right. One that we first are, that we confess, confess contrite, right? Contrite, and second that we receive absolution from the pastor as from Christ Himself. So true contrition, uh, well, true repentance, meaning both true contrition and true <laughs> um, uh, absolution, mm -hmm. both rely upon God revealing in His Word both both her sin and His forgiveness. Right, which is a complete subversion of the late medieval system of penance because it's, I confess my sin and then the priest tells me what I need to do to prove my contrition and repentance and then I go do it. So it's literally confession then law, not confession then absolution. Mm. Yeah, that's true too. Hmm. And But my point was is that contrition isn't a self-realization, um, but it is literally being ground down by God's word. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. In like Psalm 32 or Psalm 38, when your hand was heavy upon me, my bones mm -hmm. melted like wax, and then I made my confession. Well, why was God's hand heavy on you? Because I didn't confess my sin. Right. Which coming from David, we know why. <laughs> we, we, yeah, there's plenty aware. of historic evidence. Right. So then the human reason sees its own sin is so far from the truth that it is proper even for the saints and those filled with the spirit to pray confessing their ignorance. Thus, even the saints confess their ignorance. Right. Wow. David exclaims, who can discern his errors? Psalm 19, verse 12. And then Psalm 25, verse 7. Remember not the sins of my youth. Because I don't. No, that's true. I was I was thinking about this last night too. Of It's so hard when you're older to not realize that you're looking at your 20-year-old self through the eyes of your 45-year-old self, let's say. And you're holding your 20-year-old self to the standards of a 45-year-old man versus what were you when you were 20? Stupid beyond compare. I'm talking about myself. Yeah, and so and this is the best part about having this kind of uh, forgetfulness, right? We only right. remember, hopefully only remember the, the best parts and we forget all and, the other things. Even that's so fragmentary. Our, our memory is so unreliable. I think, our, I, I wonder about this. I, now we're getting into some pretty heavy uh, science, but yeah. Um, I don't. I, I don't think it's our memory is is unreliable. I think the way that it gets distorted 
by our recall i should say more specifically our recall is so unreliable well, it, it gets contorted or distorted through mm-hmm. um through what we want to perceive right, right. through our desire our hopes or, or whatever well, it's like the one neuroscientist i listened to said we don't actually remember the event we remember our memory of that event mm-hmm. no which makes it even more distorted because then we are distorting in almost like a fun house mirror sort of way that event so that events that may have been all right we then blow up to be like this great experience we had and things or a that terrible we then, one actually or, i was gonna say or this fight that i had with my girlfriend when i was 17 and i think to myself i feel so bad i wish i could find her and apologize because it was so terrible in the moment it was just two dumb 17 year old kids having a fight and she may not even remember it of course she doesn't because she doesn't have a mind like a prairie fence like i do yeah <laughs> But also, then there's Freud, <laughs> well, who says yeah. these things sit in your psyche. I don't know. I sure. mean, maybe maybe it's true. Maybe it does kind of bear in your subconscious. I don't know. Well, if it if it wasn't important, I wouldn't remember it. Well, it does on and yours I'll, certainly, right? And allow me and allow it to drive you in the present. I was kind of referring to the whole, you know, childhood trauma, and it's like in the background. And oh, absolutely. And I just said that, like growing up being abused, hmm? for example, by a Vietnam vet with a profound PTSD who's an alcoholic and a drug addict obviously had a profound effect on me growing up and then becoming an adult. And as one of my friends said, when his father died and he was asked how he felt about that, the first thing that came out of his mouth was, his foot is finally off my neck. That's something. That even this man in hospice who's so feeble he can't even lift his head, he's still afraid of this guy. (laughs) All those years later, he's still afraid of his father. And the only thing that would relieve that pressure was to literally be there when the casket was lowered into the grave and the dirt's covering him up. And then he can say, finally, so some finally of that I'm sticks. free. But then, oh, 100%. But like uh, Melanchthon's saying here uh, with David, um, a lot of it, we actually are pretty good at forgetting. 100%. Right. That the stuff that bubbles up in our in our memories, that's just the simple, hey, I had this fight with my girlfriend when I was 17, or I did this dumb thing when I was 20, whatever it might be. It's not even the depth of it. No, those are oh. dust particles. <laughs> yeah. The real evil stuff is the stuff that, like you said, even if we could recall it, we would refuse because it would reveal to us that you're a monster. Yeah, the hurt that it would bring upon you. Right. Right. And this is why Luther was careful um, in the catechism and, you know, in his instruction about confession is that no one can enumerate all their sins. And if you try to, you would just invent, you actually even just invent ones to avoid the ones that you don't want to talk about. And I've said this before, I don't think the term supernatural when applied to God is applicable. I think that Jesus is actually the most natural man who's ever lived mm-hmm. yeah. and that we are actually subnatural on account of sin. So therefore, when Jesus shows up and just does what's quote unquote natural and should be natural to all of us, we go, oh, that's supernatural. It's like, no, dude, I'm actually the only thing on the entire face of the planet that's true, that's natural. You're all not natural because of sin. Well, we're amazed at this 12 year old who who speaks with such wisdom and you're like right do you recognize that it's because you're intentionally not speaking yes maybe not intentionally maybe out of ignorance but more than likely you're avoiding saying the things you just aren't comfortable saying right right like because that's can you that's re- what sin does well isn't it it's always the ones that come along especially in the religious context right in the church context that come along and say hey guys um i know we keep we've been doing this for a while but maybe we should rethink it. Uh, it doesn't right. go well for them. Yeah, I was going to say, never, never criticize the institution. <laughs> right, because you have the audacity to call out what everybody else is intentionally ignoring. Right, that's the whole point of the emperor's new clothes. Mm, true. That's yeah. what the law does. God just comes along and goes, you're naked. 
<laughs> and everyone goes, hey, you're right. We, we've, no, and that's actually Genesis chapter three. We hid, why? Because we were naked and we were afraid. Out of the mouths of babes. Right. So back to Mel. Remember not the sins of my youth. David says many more things like this elsewhere. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse nine, it says that the heart is deceitful and corrupt. And in the following verse, we read, quote, I, the Lord, search the mind and try the heart. Well, <laughs> that's an uncomfortable truth in a nutshell. That's a devastating sentence. I, I've wondered about the folks who, who will say to, uh, say to me, well, God is everywhere. I'm like, do you know what that actually then means? Mm -hmm. um, that should make, make your... That should terrify you. Yeah, because when you thought you were in secret, you weren't. Your heart is deceitful and corrupt, and the Lord searches the mind, and he tries the heart. Mm. The very places you don't want him to visit <laughs> are the first place he goes. Oh, yeah. that's Well, that's the corresponding one where, where uh, folks will say, well, how do you know right. Jesus is with you? Well, because he's in my heart. It's like, um, awkward? <laughs> it's, uh, to use another analogy, when I send my kids up to clean, I say, you've got 20 minutes. And then I'm coming upstairs because you've had all week. Mm -hmm. And so I hear them. You can hear things flying around. But you even gave them 20 minutes. That's sad. Anyway, right? go ahead. <laughs> I know. I'm a benevolent dictator. And so I walk up and I look at the room and it's spotless, spotless. And I turn to the right and I walk to the cubby and I open the cubby and there it is. Yep. Every a time. Pile. Every time. Every time, right? Like, they're like, no, don't look in there. I'm like, that's God in a nutshell right there. God just goes... Hey, I'm going to look over there in the cubby. No, uh, look under the bed. The bed, look under the bed. I cleaned under the bed. I wonder about uh, maybe something else is, is behind that and that we think that God is so unlike us that he can't understand us. He doesn't know how we can, you know, he doesn't know our deceit the way that we do. And like, Well, I think we know he's unlike us and that he knows everything and we can't hide it from him. Mm, mm. Again, we, we're hiding behind trees because we knew you were coming and we were afraid. But it's really the beauty of the incarnation is that, yes. is that uh, anytime someone says, well, God couldn't possibly know. Like, hmm? um, actually, that's, he was made man. Yeah, I was going to say, that's yeah. the point of Hebrews. He was tempted us in a, like us in every way, but without sin so that he might sympathize with us mm -hmm. when those things come and overwhelm us. Right, I mean, the first thing that happens after his baptism, at least in the synoptics, is he's driven into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted. Right. Um, why? because that's the life of the baptized. <laughs> right. And to go back to the example, if my kids would just say, there's no way we can possibly clean our room in 20 minutes, we're just gonna shove all the toys in the closet like we always do, so please, can you forgive us for not doing this? And can you come upstairs and help us do it? And I'd say, yeah, absolutely, 100%. Whereas God says, you know, I can just do it. Like, I'll just, I've already done it for you. I've already done it. <laughs> like, you don't have to try. You don't have to hide. It's it's done. It's it's again. It's Good Friday, and we rebel against. Yeah, that. and we rebel against that. The giftedness of the whole, of everything, and right. Yet we want to take ownership of it for ourselves. And the counter, the pushback to use that analogy because I think it's simple and childish, and therefore helpful. <laughs> God does that. He cleans out everything up for us, and then the accusation is: Well, if He always cleans your room up for you, then you're just going to keep making messes. I.e., if God keeps forgiving you, you're just going to keep sinning. Mm -hmm. You're going to use that as an excuse to sin. It's like, I don't think you understand how this relationship works. I'm not not going to sin, regardless of whether he forgives me or not. 
Yeah. That's his point is he has to come back and rescue me from my sin every day because I just keep repeating the original fall into sin every day. Why? One, I can't help myself. That's the nature of sin. And two, I like it. That is also the nature of sin. Right. So we have this kind of, uh, what we shortchange the nature of our own character, our, you know, sinful nature. And we also shortchange our, the the power of our will to collaborate with our sinful nature. Right. Absolutely. Mm. It's like my, my baby girl, she's got the whole, all the kids wrapped around her finger. So when she wants something, they get it for her. And then she'll pick it up like the bottle. She'll get her bottle of electrolytes and she'll hold it out. Oh, but she's so the, cute. Oh, she's so cute. Devastating. <laughs> so what she'll do then is when she gets the bottle, she'll hold it out while she looks at them, right? She's looking right at them and she holds the bottle out and drops it on the floor. And then smiles, this sweet, oh, this the, it's a smile that can melt chrome. And they pick it up and they give it back to her. And she grabs it and she takes a drink and she holds it out and she drops it. And I keep telling them, if you stop doing that, she'll stop doing that. And they're like, but she cries when we don't pick it up. I'm like, but she's not actually crying. It's a game. You're being manipulated. You're being played. It's interesting because maybe, you know, our household being nine children, uh, the oldest ones don't fall for it anymore. Um, right. And, but I look at them and I'm also like, oh, yeah, they're actually at childbearing age, which is a very uncomfortable thought and uh, <laughs> <laughs> capable of it anyway. And yes. uh, but I, but I watch, and the, you know, their youngest brother, you know, drops his food on the floor and right. they just take the tray off, take him out of his seat. But he's also figured out that that means I can just eat the food off the floor now. Floor, exactly. Right. Um, so he's hacked it. Yeah. Anyway, but I was going to say, my mastiff and my shepherd have figured that out. Like, we'll just sit under the table yeah, quietly. They just camp no there. one will see us. Exactly. <laughs> we know what's coming. Yeah. <laughs> Crumbs from the master's table. That's right. Exactly. So back to Melanchthon. Uh, after they, okay, so then bring me back. So he says, the Lord searches the mind and tries the heart. So then Jeremiah 31 verses 18 and following, you have chastened me and I was chastened like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored for you are the Lord, my God. For after I had turned away, I repented. And after I was instructed, I struck upon my thigh. I was ashamed. And I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Mm, mm, mm. Hmm. That Jeremiah. That Jeremiah is true. Uh, we don't get to hear from him very often, liturgically. Not nearly enough. I wonder about that. Uh, I think it's similar to like the penitential um, or the uh, oh, imprecatory yeah. Psalms, right? I was going to say, Jeremiah is devastating. Hmm. And what was going on when Jeremiah was prophesying? Right. Uh, things were pretty pretty off the rails rumors of war false worship yeah they threw him down a well Mm. for being a spy right you're preaching against the kingdom you must be a spy what is an untrained calf how does that behave i should ask my farmers just does whatever they want yeah i was gonna say an unbroken cat an unbroken calf right Mm -hmm. like an unbroken colt Mm. kicking at the uh kicking at the restraints not able again in in what so you have this calf that just runs wild so then what's the consequence of a calf running wild? Well, it turns into a wild bull mm. or a wild heifer. Mm-hmm. Can't give milk, whatever it might be, but an untrained calf can't actually pull the, or in this case too, can't pull the plow. True. It, it's useless. It's of no use to the farm. Hmm. Right. It's an interesting picture from Jeremiah. Yeah. My organist uh, oldest, they have a dairy farm. And so all of my illusions about and romantic ideas about like milk cows and stuff have been destroyed. 
Yeah, we've got uh, three farms. Yeah. There's nothing more shocking than the first time you're licked by a cow. <laughs> it's like an octopus's tentacle that just reaches out and grabs you. This picture, I think, would make sense more in, in terms of like um, uh, your dog, your family pet. Yes, right? sure. Yeah. That, yeah. you know, when they know they've done wrong because they hear it in the tone of voice. Um, and then, you know, you teach them and, right. and they yeah, sit and they kind dog. of cower at your feet. Yeah. Um, being disgraced or ashamed. I mean, that's, right. that's the picture. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Before there was domestic dogs, there was domestic cattle. I guess. Well, they lived in your house, right? Oh, yeah, that's true. That is true. But the, also this point, I think his point too here though is like an untrained calf, you have to bring me back. Mm -hmm. That is a calf will not come at the call. It will not come at the sound of the bell. It will not stay with the herd. Had to be chastened, that word Yes. There. Yeah. Yeah, chastened. Disciplined. Disciplined. So that I may be restored for you are the Lord my God. Because after I turned away, then I repented or was repented, depending on the verb there. And after I was instructed... I struck myself upon the thigh. I smote upon my thigh. I struck myself upon the thigh. Why? Because I was ashamed. I was confounded. There's that word again. Mm -hmm. Because I bore the disgrace of my youth. And we go back to Psalm 25, remember not the sins of my youth. So we talked about this in the previous two episodes. This is really the brilliance of Melanchthon as a biblical scholar is he's able to just grab this and go, oh, here. And this is a key point. We talk about this a lot in higher things. We don't cherry pick verses to prove a point, but rather we see the Bible as a whole. Even mm. though it's 66 individual writings, mm -hmm. it yeah. functions for us as a whole. Right. It preaches Christ. That's the, every page of scripture preaches Christ. But this is what it means that every page preaches Christ is that Psalm 25 can be cross-referenced with Jeremiah 31, with Matthew 16, with Exodus and Galatians 3. I mean, you can do, you can see it as a whole rather than as little individual pieces mm -hmm. or parts. That's right. That's right. And you don't have to impose upon the text for that to happen. Yes, absolutely. Mm. If, well, that's the point, right? If it is truly God's word and it is a whole, you don't have to do that. It also then presumes, and it, as far as the art of biblical interpretation, it, it presumes that the scriptures actually are clear. That, yes. That the words make sense. Right. And as Dr. Luther says in The Bondage of the Will, if there's any passage of scripture that's confusing or ambiguous, that's not because God is confusing and ambiguous or his word is, but rather because of sin, we are <laughs> confused yeah. and we want to actually read ambiguity into the scripture so that we can make it say what we want it to say for us. And if you want to see this play out, I mean, compare the clarity of the scripture to, you know, any of the uh, religious texts of human origin. <laughs> sure. Uh, like the Quran or, yeah, yeah. Um, or Hindu texts or Bodhisattva right. or whoever it is. And uh, yeah, it's pretty incredible. I was going to say, our friend Adam Francisco sent me an essay on the fatwa of martial arts by the OG of modern jihadists. Mm. And the fatwa of, on the martial arts is actually a very uplifting and encouraging treatise, essay, espousing the virtues of martial training. And ultimately, the purpose for martial training is to serve God by protecting your neighbor. Mm. Right? But then the jihadists took this, and to your point, they basically spun it out as when we declared jihad we're actually serving God and our neighbor by murdering the infidel and gaining paradise as a consequence. So all of a sudden, this thing that was considered to be good, virtuous, protecting the kingdom and so forth was turned into, well, this is why we can go over there and blow up a car and kill everybody in the marketplace. Yeah. Wow. It's like, no, bow and arrow, good. Car bomb, bad. <laughs> we were also talking about um, the clarity of, of the scripture uh, before we went on air in regards to the Psalms. 
Um, yes. Because it's been a priority for me, New Parish, and so, you know, I can kind of try try something new um, for me, which was, you know, just put the Psalms front and center week in, week out, um, and also in our daily prayers. And so I'm just appointing Psalms, and, and we're using right. them, right? And we're praying them. And, uh, you know, a comment that the the Psalm, you know, the Psalms aren't, aren't understandable actually came right, from a lifelong right. Lutheran. And like, okay, um, I can see that, but I think it's because, one, they're not linear um, in thought necessarily, but also, you know, they, they are rich in confounding sin. Well, I was going to say, the, the thing that I talk about all the time is that we don't, again, you read like First Corinthians and Paul lists all of these terms, mm, righteousness, yeah, wisdom, yeah. Uh, sanctification, and he applies them as nouns to Jesus. They're synonyms for Jesus. Mm -hmm. So then you go back and read, righteous is the man. Now, you and I would say, well, that's Jesus because there's only one righteous man. But those who are not, who don't have that lexicon available to them and were never taught to read in that way, that faith is a synonym for Jesus, righteousness, wisdom, all these things are synonyms for Jesus. When they read the word wisdom, they're thinking of human wisdom yeah. or they're thinking of God's wisdom in a kind of abstract sort of way, which kind of comes all the way back around to philosophical stuff. Because what do we have to fall back on? Um, versus the pastor or theologian who comes in and goes, here, let me teach you how to read the Psalms, which is this word righteousness. Notice how Paul applies this, like I was just saying. We see the text as a whole, then we see the Bible as a whole. Now when we read righteousness, we ask, well, is this a righteousness that's uh, horizontal? It's it's between neighbors? Is it, is it human righteousness? Or is this a vertical righteousness that is God and me, mm -hmm. and that I am unrighteous on account of sin, and God is righteous because he is sinless, and therefore he imputes his righteousness to me for Jesus' sake. Maybe, that, when I, maybe that's yeah. the confounding of it. When we read the Psalms, we read them as stories about us, rather yes. than, than you know the word speaking of the word, Jesus. Right, and as I've said to you before, one of my frustrations is all of these books about the prophecies in the Old Testament that point to Jesus, but completely fail to recognize the theophany, which is the word of God that speaks that prophecy is the subject of that prophecy. Mm -hmm. The second person of the Trinity is the one who's speaking the prophecy about himself. Yeah. So when he says to uh, Eve, you know, the, the your offspring yes. is going to crush the serpent's head, that's a yeah. promise that right. the offspring makes to his mother. To her, right, exactly. Which... <laughs> Again, it's like a mind bender. <laughs> it is. It is. That's, there's the confounding of the human heart is that when the son says to the mother, you will give birth to me, it's just going to be about a couple thousand years, but I'll show up. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I was like, and, and so she takes that to mean her son Cain, which means again, the Lord has given, or God has given me a son, the Lord. So you can't fault her for giving her, her son that name when God's word just said, mm. your son will be the savior. And she has a son and she's like, there's the savior. Yeah. Yeah, same exactly. for uh, um, the the angel Gabriel coming with Jesus. Yes, Jesus' right. word to announce Jesus's conception right. to Mary. Right. His conception is announced by right. him <laughs> to well, his mother. Not to pass over it because I'm thinking out loud now. But this is Cain is the ultimate prototype for us then because Cain is told this is all about you. Mm, so yeah. he so he reads himself into that theology. He reads himself into that confession of faith. He is being faithful. Yeah. He talks to God. He prays to God. He sacrifices to God. But he fully thinks he's the savior. 
Right. But then notice what God does is he still says, I'll put my mark on you. I forgive you. Like I'm giving you grace. I'm showing you grace here because I'm not, it's not eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I'm not going to take your life because you took your brother's life, but rather Abel's blood cries out. And mm. and what I'm going to do with that with that confession of your brother's blood is, I'm going to put my mark on you to protect you. I'm going to send you out from here. Yeah. That we can't stop from reading ourselves into the text and, and stop ourselves from wanting to make ourselves the savior. Mm. And mm. yet God still comes to us and says, even in spite of that, I still will put my mark on you, the mark of the cross and baptism. I will still show you grace. Right. And if we understood what that meant, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know that's, I mean, that'd just really be hard to bear. It's kind of a right. uh, tangential, but I think you'll appreciate it. The the show Good Omens, which on Amazon oh, yeah, Prime. Right. Just started watching on, it. Yep. Yeah, it's based on the book. Anyway, what if, what if Satan's offspring did not know that he was Satan's offspring? Satan's what, offspring, exactly. What, what would that actually look There's like? There's a mix up at the nunnery. Right, and we get this with Jesus, though. Um, I think it's, ref, he's re, you know, the authors are reflecting on that, and that, you know, he grows in wisdom and stature before God and men. Yes. Right, that, that in his humiliation, um, Jesus himself does not, he, he doesn't seem to, um, you know, according to his humanity, acknowledge right. or, or even understand everything that it's about about to be. Right. Well, I was going to say, right, the word is the wisdom of God. And yet that word, when he becomes flesh, has to grow in wisdom and stature before men. Yeah, that's, that's a part of him. That's, too. Yeah. Right. So when Paul says in, in Philippians 2, he gave up all that authority, that's also part of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He gave up wisdom. And, and so he knows, um, and also um, that knowledge is restrained. Right? Yes, 100%. Yeah. So that he could be like us in every way, so that he is able to sympathize with us in every way. Confounded. <laughs> yes, we are confounded, Lord. I know. I know. Been there. Ooh, that was a good conversation. <laughs> so, who is there who thinks he has fulfilled the law, since Christ commands in Matthew chapter sixteen, verse twenty-four, that we should deny our very selves? Ooh. Hmm. Literally, every sentence now, it's not even paragraphs. It's just sentence after sentence after sentence. Melanchthon is just dropping these bombs. Matthew 16, 24. As you said. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Right. Mm-hmm. But like you said uh, previous, is that this is so easily understandable when you read this. He's so clear and so concise, so efficient with his words, so economical. There, yeah, it's impossible in my opinion, to really mistake what he's saying here. Well, and I think that's helpful to remember um, because that's really the burden of the Christian preacher. I think of the parent to the child, you know, child yeah. teaching the faith yeah. is not to confound them with the scriptures, um, but to show right. them. I think if I think if you maybe set as your agenda, your priority, um, how does this proclaim Christ? Um, right. You you find simplicity where where previously you might have seen kind of distortion. Like sure. Like like why does he say three days here? And right. you say, well, let, let me think in terms of Christ. Oh, yes, three days. I know right. about three days. Yeah. Exactly. And then you say, okay, it's, it doesn't have to be this really complicated argument about right. um, days and weeks and all these sort of things. It simply is pointing us towards the cross again and towards the resurrection. Right. right. Yeah. It's not, it's not about the days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's not the primary thing here. Mm-hmm. Or even, so even then, the seven days of creation, you know, we get hung up on that, right? Right. Did God really create the heavens and earth in seven days? And then you're like... Um, you know, the, the like culmination of this whole story is about a week. Yeah. A very particular week. 
of a particular uh, week exactly uh -huh. and and actually that that first week patterns creation, pretty well against the new week creation yeah redemption and redemption why a week <laughs> yeah okay <laughs> have you been dempted no but i have been redempted <laughs> several times so then to sum up the proper work of the law is the revealing of sin or to put it even more clearly the bringing about of a consciousness of sin hmm. let me repeat that <laughs> The proper work of the law is the revealing of sin, or to put it more clearly, the bringing about a consciousness of sin. Paul calls it the bond which stood against us with its legal demands. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. For thus Paul defines conscience both more elegantly and more exactly than the sophist writers of sentences, that would mm -hmm. be Peter Lombard, Yep who conjure up numerous practical syllogisms, they think in circles, <laughs> when they describe the word conscience. As in, it could mean this, but it, it doesn't mean that. that. Right, exactly. We could say it this way, but you should maybe say it this way. Yeah, back right. and forth. Again, lots of subjunctives. Right, and also, like you said, making things actually more complicated right. than the clarity that the scripture right. gives. So what else is the consciousness of sin than the judgment of the law revealing the sin in our heart? For that is what Paul says in Col Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, quote, the bond which stood against us with its legal demands. He means that the conscience is a bond, a bond with legal demands, because through legal demands, through the law, it stands against us. What's the relationship of, uh, of this term consciousness of sin uh, to mm -hmm. faith. I mean, properly speaking, we say faith is sure. faith in Christ for forgiveness. Right. Um, but we, isn't there a broader sense to the idea of faith um, that is to trust in what God says? Right, exactly. You take God at his word. And so, and his word says, <laughs> you right. are a sinner. Right. And we say, yes, I am a sinner. Amen. <laughs> Amen. And that's the end of it. We don't even ask for forgiveness. Mm. But rather, this is the whole point of, I believe I cannot believe in mm. Jesus Christ, my Lord, to come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified me and keep me. The point being, I can only confess that I, do, I can't believe in Jesus or come to him until after the gospel is preached to me and I've been enlightened with the gifts. Mm. Yeah. And our confessions are careful to say there is no repentance apart from the proclamation of absolution. Exactly. If exactly. there is no, it's, it's not a carrot and a stick. Right. Um, I mean, maybe it functions a little bit that way, but that's we not the prefer point. It, we would prefer it function that way. I'll confess if you'll forgive me. Right. right. That's not how it works. I forgive right. you, but I right. haven't confessed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now you can confess because you know I am, right. I am merciful, kind, steadfast, loving kindness. That's my character, God speaking. Well, imagine if that was the beginning of service to make uh, absolution first, announce the absolution first, and then they, like you said, then they, their response is they confess their sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Think of how crazy that would be. Yeah. Jesus died for you. You are forgiven. And you say, but wait. Um, and you know, the, the prodigal son, which is kind of a large yes. paradigm for us on this, right. on this whole topic. Right. Um, the, the, I don't know. Did the father, maybe, maybe over the meal later on, we could speculate. They're having sure. their fattened calf and their well-aged right. wine and whatnot. Right. And uh, the son's like, yeah, let me tell you about my trip. Right. Well, I think this is the point too, is that faith produces gratitude. Because mm. as I've said before, after I was baptized, after I was at seminary and I had time to think about this, as I started reading theology, I realized if I had died an atheist, I would have 
been in hell. So therefore, the fact that I try to kill myself so many times and all the things around me that try to kill me, and yet here I'm a baptized Christian now and go, wow, like, like I had 24 years there, 25, 26, you know, 24 years, 25, 26, four years after that. So yeah, there's 27 years. Yeah. I had 27 years of free time to damn myself, to go straight to hell. And yet in his mercy, he protected and preserved me. And as we've talked about before, then you come after the fact and go, wait, you actually made me in my mother's womb to become a pastor? Really? Yeah, figure that one out, right? <laughs> Again, just borsh, your brain melts. But the point is, is that you can only really be honest about your past. Uh, Until you've been absolved. The sins of, of your youth, yeah. Right. Um, because you can only see them right for what they are right you can only be honest about them knowing they're forgiven right exactly right to see a person who comes to you for confession not in terms of what they've just said but in relation to eternity in relation to the cross as you were just noting you listen but you you listen in such a way and there's a whole bunch of stuff that precedes that confession as a pastor which is things like love kindness um uh brotherhood fellowship you're, you're building up leadership currency, as we say. And that currency is you've proven yourself worthy of their coming to you to make that confession. And it's grounded upon your preaching and teaching of Jesus Christ crucified for the sin of the world, especially you. And then the freedom that comes with that is the freedom to come in and say, I got, this has been eating away at me for 48 years and I can't, I can't carry it anymore. No, that's true and, too, though. Um, you know, the first confession, you know, is not necessarily all that terribly um, crazy, but right. it, it tends to uh, spin out in more and more yeah. confession. Right? Yeah, it's like a it's like one of those it's like a washing machine, and the footings <laughs> are off, so it just as it starts to vibrate, it just starts to rock more violently. Yeah, and or then the dam breaks. Fall, so or to speak. the dam breaks. Yeah, that the confession will, like you said, it, it vibrates apart, it it bursts out, but it starts with a leak usually. That, so, Pastor, if that's forgiven, how about this? Right, exactly. And I, I, right. I'm not saying it. I mean, that sounds a little flippant, but but in a very good way, right? No, I'm. It actually does come out a lot of times like that, where they come to you and they're like, "Hey, I've been arguing with my brother about this. What mm -hmm. do you think?" And then all of a sudden, it goes. You know, when Dad died, and then it goes back to when we were little. Dad used to take us out in the barn and just beat the living tar out of us. And all of a sudden, it just starts to unfold. Yeah, the little shame by little. and the guilt that's that's all yes. maybe buried or, or it's just yeah. layer upon layer. Yeah. Right. And like we said, it, you know, your memory is so unreliable that a lot of times when you confess and then have time to reflect on that confession, other stuff, the Holy Spirit and his kindness works other stuff out. <laughs> and it may not, It. I mean, it. <laughs> it is the law's proper work. It may not be God's proper work, generally speaking, right, you'd say it is the gospel. Yeah. Right. But it is the law's proper work. And it's not, I mean, it's a good thing. Yes. It, it's not it not in terms of like self-improvement project, but rather in terms of relation, relational, right? Between right. both before God and before your neighbor. It, it, in it, relation it, to Christ, the law is a good thing. Yeah, it, it, it just gets everything out of the way. Right. Um, so that love, love is it. Love is everything. Mm. Love is all you need. Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, there we go. We got another song later, Ken. Capital L, love. God is love. Jesus is God. Therefore, Jesus is love. Mm -hmm. I think you said love, that actually. Perfect love drives out all fear. Yeah. Tetelestai, by the way. Everything, Alpha, Omega, beginning and end. Yep. Yeah, Tetelestai, love drives out all fear. Good Friday drives out all fear. It's true. So I think we're good with that now. And next time we're going to come back with the power of the gospel. We've tried to sneak the gospel in a few times here. <laughs> we can't not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, even Melanchthon couldn't, when he was reading Exodus, like, oh, by the way, this is a little bit of gospel yeah, this here. Is, yeah, we need a little bit of a break here. So as always, I hope you've benefited from this conversation. I really hope this motivates you to go out and buy um, the low chi, the low side. You should moose. buy the low chi. You must. You will <laughs> buy the low chi. Um, let's see, there's the Library of Christian Classics edition, and then there's also one that CPH publishes, right? I think Which so. is all, yeah. that's like all of his edits. Is that up through 1545? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah. And I, and I, I, have I haven't the other... looked at it enough to make a judgment about it either way. I don't own that one. This is the first one I bought just because I worked at Barnes & Noble and it was on sale. Somebody probably wrote a thesis comparing the two editions. I, sure. I mean, yeah, I'm yeah. positive. There's a blog post yeah. out there somewhere. The, the link in the show notes is the 1521, which is what we've been using. So. Right. So go check it out, like I said, and I hope you benefit from it as much as uh, we have. And uh, come back next week for a brand new episode. We appreciate you for everything you do to support this and higher things. Have fun at conferences this summer, and uh, we love you. Peace.